Well, please turn your Bibles to Genesis 18. Genesis 18, and just a reminder, that's the series we're going through, is the, the Genesis, really part of the, the Pentateuch, going through uh, this, this section of Scripture. It was several months ago that we were uh, here, and so let me give you a little bit of a refresher as to what's going on here in the Pentateuch. And as we began our series on the Pentateuch, we said a couple things. We said there's an, an author of the Pentateuch, and it's, there's a divine author and a human author. God wrote the Pentateuch. He did so with, through Moses, and both God and Moses have some things that they're trying to communicate to their audience, which is the, the people of Israel as they prepare to enter in the Promised Land. And the purpose of the Pentateuch is, is not just to give the people a bunch of laws and rules and regulations and stipulations. It's, it's to help the people of Israel know how they are to live in obedience to God as they go into the promised land. These, these laws are not to be burdensome, they're to be joyful, and they are to ultimately, the ultimate purpose is to teach the people to live by faith, to love God, to believe God. God here in the Pentateuch is exhorting his people to live by faith. Faith specifically in the, in the promised seed in the Messiah, and he promises his kingdom uh, to those who uh, passionately love him and demonstrate their faith through obedience to the law that he gives. And so that's what's happening here in uh, the Pentateuch. And there's a couple sections. There's the the kind of beginning where God deals with the nations, and then there's this section where he begins to deal with the patriarchs, and that begins in Genesis 12. There's going to be the story of the Exodus, there's going to be the wanderings in the wilderness, and then there's going to be the reminders uh, that happen in the book of Deuteronomy. But this morning, we're in Genesis 18, and uh, in Genesis 17, we've, we've seen uh, the, the covenant that God makes with Abraham, or the sign of the covenant that he gives him to remind him who he is in God. And then we come into verse 1 of chapter 18, and it flows right from Genesis 17 as the sign of the covenant has been given. And we see that the Lord appears to Moses. I believe that's referring to the second person of the Trinity. This is what we call a, a theophany or a Christophany. It's an appearance of the second member of the Trinity in the Old Testament. There are two messengers who appear with him, and these, these three divine messengers or these three messengers from heaven the second member of the Trinity and these, these two angelic messengers tell Abraham, they confirm what the covenant has promised as well, that he's going to have a son. Sarah laughs, and God says, no, indeed, this is going to take place. In verse 14, he says, is anything too hard for me, uh, too hard for the Lord at the appointed time? I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. And then we come down into verse 16, we're going to read verses 16 through 33 uh, together this morning. If you're able to, if you would stand in honor of God as we read his word together. Genesis chapter 18, beginning verse 16. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down towards Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. And the Lord... Yahweh said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. 
so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, and this is to Abraham, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me, and if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are fifty righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the fifty righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? The Lord said, If I find at Sodom fifty righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. Again he spoke to him and said, Suppose forty are found there. He answered, For the sake of forty I will not do it. Then he said, Oh, oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose thirty are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find thirty there. He said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose twenty are found there. He answered, For the sake of the twenty, I will not destroy it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again but this once. Suppose... Ten are found there. He answered, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. You may be seated. May God encourage us through his word this morning. Father, our request to you this morning would be that you would allow us to be in your son Jesus. Our request would be that you would allow our hearts to be soft to receive your word and to believe it, that our our minds would be able to to grasp what it's saying and you'd give us the ability to, to implement it in our lives. Help us to desire that. Help us to trust in you, to trust in your character, to believe in you. We pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. When a person you love says something to you when they're, they're going through a tough time, they might say something that is a common thing to say, and you may struggle to know how to respond to it. It's this. They're struggling, they're going through a tough time, and they say, this isn't fair. This isn't fair. And it can be hard to know how to respond. On the one hand, you're not even really totally sure what they mean by that phrase, this isn't fair. Now, maybe they're just saying life in general, because we're, you know, we're fallen creatures, this is not in tune with righteousness and justice, and so the circumstance that I am in is a reflection of, of just living in a fallen world, and that's not right. And, and, and of course, that's, that's a true statement and, and an okay way to, to feel. But maybe they mean something more than that. Maybe they mean when they say, this isn't fair. Maybe what they're saying is, is God isn't fair. 
And the hard thing, too, can be not only understanding what they mean when they say this isn't fair, but just, just checking our own hearts as we think about the situation that someone we love is in. This, this person is in a, a tough situation. We love them. And we struggle with this phrase, this, this doesn't seem fair. This isn't fair. Here's a, here's a good person, and they're going through this, this health problem. This doesn't seem just. It doesn't seem righteous. Here's a person at, at our workplace, and, and you know, 50 people who are incompetent keep their jobs, and my friend who is just the, the best employee, he loses his job or she loses his job. This, this isn't fair. This doesn't seem right. Or someone that we love is, is going through a financial difficulty, or a, a child, we, we hear a story of a child who's suffering, and our thought is, th- this isn't fair, this isn't right, and our heart struggles with it. And here's why it struggles with it, perhaps theologically. Because we know that, that God is working to glorify himself. We, we know that that's true, that God is working to have his glory manifested throughout the entire universe. And we believe that to be true, and we're excited about that. And we also believe it to be true that God is sovereign, that he is in control of all things. There's, there's no aspect of my life that God is not sovereign over. And so we, we believe that to be true as well. And so the, the logical question that we might ask ourselves then is, is God fair? Is God fair as he carries out his sovereign plan for the universe and me? Is God fair? He has this plan and he's sovereign over this plan. And so my question is, is he fair? Because here I am in this circumstance and what's happening to me doesn't seem right. Or what's happening to this, this person I love does, doesn't seem like it's, it's in accordance with, with that which is righteous and, and just. And is God fair? So spoiler alert. I'm going to answer that yes. Another spoiler alert. I'm not going to have all the answers this morning. I'm not going to pretend to, to know how to answer every specific circumstance that you find yourself in. But I kind of view it like this. Sometimes I'll be reading a book, and Whitney will ask me, she goes, well, is it a good book? And I'll say, I don't know yet. A lot of bad things are happening in this book right now, and when I get to the end, I'll tell you whether or not it was a good book, because how this thing ends determines how I view all the things that are happening right now. If it ends this way, it was a great book, because it puts all these things in perspective. If it ends this way, it was a terrible book and a waste of my time. We're watching a a movie on uh, that app, VidAngel. Great, great app. At VidAngel, you can kind of take bad stuff out of movies. And so we're watching uh, the Martian movie with, with our kids and kind of took all the, the language out. And, and the kids, as we're watching uh, poor Matt Damon stuck on Mars, we're watching this movie, and the kids ask, Dad, is, you know, um, what's going to happen? And is this, a, is this a good movie? And I said, well, you know, let's see how this goes, right? If it ends one way, all these things are fine. It ends another way, then it's kind of way, you know, the ending affects what's happening in the events, right? Now, right now, many of you are, are in the middle of a story in your lives. And I don't know how all the, the different individual things that are, that are part of your story are going to affect 
the bigger story. I, I don't know how God is going to use this specific instance in your life and, and this specific instance in your life and this struggle in your life. I don't know those things. I can't pretend to know. But I know the overarching, I know the bigger story that your story is a part of, and I know how that story ends. And I know the character of the one who is in control of these things, and so I, I take great comfort in those things. Here in the text that we're looking at, Abraham does something that, that I think is based upon what he believes about God's character. There's some, some things that are happening that he says, man, this, these, are, these are bad things. Something's going to happen here that's bad, but I'm going to take comfort in the character of, of this God. There's some things Abraham knows about the character of God that he takes comfort in. And my encouragement to you this morning as we think about this question, is God fair, would be to look at Abraham, look at this person who had faith and and take some similar comfort. And really, I just want to walk through, again, I'm not going to be able to answer all questions ever about suffering and pain and difficulty and how that relates to God's fairness, but I want to just lay out seven truths that I take comfort in as I wrestle with these issues, as people I love go through tough circumstances, as people I love go through horrible suffering. These are seven truths that I take comfort in that I think will help you as well. Here's the thing that we're going to think about as we think about all these truths. We're going, to, we're going to understand this, that God is a just God who has a plan for the redemption and restoration of all broken things. God is a just God who has a plan for the restoration and redemption of all broken things. So here's some truths in which I take comfort. Number one, here's the first truth. God defines what is righteous and just by his very being. God is the one who defines what is righteous and just by his very being. In other words, I may struggle, is God going to be just? Well, well, let's, let's think about that question that we're even asking God is the one who defines what righteousness and justice is by his very being. And, and look what happens here in the text. And, and look at what uh, God says as he's kind of in, in, undergoing this, this inner dialogue. God is, is talking. The, the men have set out. And it's, it's uh, again, I think it's the second person of the Trinity there. And two angelic messengers. And they're all headed towards Sodom. And Abraham's going with them. And God says this. He says, well, should I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do, seeing that he will become a great and mighty nation, the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. I've chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. Now, there's two things about God that I want you to see in those verses. One is that God is a relational God. He's a relational God. Remember, he's entered into a covenant with Abraham. And as he thinks about this covenant relationship that he has with Abraham, he recognizes, hey, there's, there's a need for us to, to talk about these things because we're in a relationship. So often as we think about God as he's described in the Old Testament, we have a paradigm of, of God being a God who held people under contracts and laws. And, and, and that's not who God is. That's not what the purpose of the law was. God is a relational God, and he doesn't enter into contracts with people. He enters into covenants with people. It's a, a formalizing of the relationship, and, and that's what's taking place here in Genesis 18. He's exercising this covenant relationship with Abraham. He's going to be transparent with Abraham because of the relationship. 
And the second thing about God's character that I want you to see here in Genesis 18 is that he is righteous and just, right? It's an attribute of, these are attributes of who God is. Abraham's responsibility, the text says, is, is to keep the way of the Lord. Now, how do you keep the way of the Lord? Well, by, by being righteous and, and just, as God is righteous and just. Righteousness means to be in conformity to God's standard of perfection, and, and justice means, to, means to, to be in a state of fairness and, and rightness. And God is, is not just, he's not just really good at being righteous and just. It's not like here's righteousness over here and justice over here and God's going to do a good job being righteous and just. No, here's God and here's righteousness and justice. God is righteousness and justice. Righteousness is defined as conformity to to God's character. Everything about God is righteous and just. There's no moment where he deviates from righteousness and justice. And any action that deviates from God's character is a deviation from righteousness. God is the standard of righteousness. Psalm 33.5, God loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. It's essential to who he is. Psalm 89.14, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. Jeremiah 9.24, Jeremiah 9.24, I love this verse. It says, let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. You, you want to be, be proud of something? Be, be proud that you know God. Not proud of yourself, proud that you know God. It says, boast that you understand and know me. And, and what does it mean to understand and know who God is? Well, you would know this about God that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, says the Lord. God is perfectly righteous and just, and he delights in righteousness and justice. He, he loves those things. And, and God is a God who whose character does not change. He's, he stays a God who loves righteousness and justice. Malachi 3, 6, I, the Lord, do not change. Numbers twenty three nineteen. God is not man that he should lie, or son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? I take comfort in this fact. I take comfort in this truth that God defines what is righteous by his very being. And he delights in righteousness. You ever thought about delight? Delight. What we do at any moment as we make choices reveals what we delight in. Even if you're walking by the the kitchen counter and you see that that plate full of chocolate chip cookies and you say, I'm not going to to eat a chocolate chip cookie even though I I love them so much. Um, Even in that moment, your ultimate delight isn't, isn't in chocolate chip cookies or, or else you would eat them. At that moment, what you're saying is, I, I delight more in, in being healthy or, or making good decisions. I'm, I'm delighted. Whatever you delight in the most affects the decisions that you make at any given moment. It's a great thing to think about as we think about sin and what it means to delight in the Lord versus sin. But, but here's how it applies to God. And here's why I take a lot, a lot of, of comfort in this truth. God delights in righteousness. And there is no moment 
in which he doesn't act in accordance with that delight. Now here's, here's the application for you and me, and here's, here's why I take comfort in this truth. There is no moment of my existence in which God has sovereignly placed me in a circumstance and been guilty of injustice. Because God is righteousness itself, and he delights in righteousness, and he always acts in accordance with righteousness. There is no moment of my existence in which God has sovereignly placed me in a circumstance and been guilty of injustice. Now, does this mean that I always understand why he's placed me there? Do I, does it mean I always understand his, his hidden plan? Absolutely not. But any moment of my life when I find myself or people I love in a certain circumstance, I can take comfort in this truth that God defines what is righteous and just by his very being. And what that does for me and and for you is it keeps us from going down as we find ourselves in a tough situation where someone we love is is sick or has, has died or something terrible has happened. It keeps us from going down some very dark paths that are not helpful for us spiritually as we remember this truth. Even though I don't understand all the circumstances, I believe this truth that God defines what is righteous and just by his very being. Here's the second truth that I take comfort in. God displays his righteousness and justice to the nations through us. Again, verse 19, God is talking about his his plan here. And he says, look, I've chosen him. I want him to command his children, his household after him. I have have these plans for him, not just as an individual, but as as a people, as a family and beyond that. I want him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that so I can bring him what I've promised him. In other words, God has a plan here, not just for Abraham, but for Abraham as it regards the nations. It's not as though I'm concerned about righteousness and God isn't. It's not as though God is, is righteous in and of himself, but in and of himself, but is not all that concerned with how his righteousness affects other people. Sometimes we can very humorously believe that we are the, the first people to really be concerned about social justice or about righteousness or about things being lived out rightly. And it's like, you know, why isn't God concerned about these things? No, no, God has been concerned about these things for a very, very long time. Part of his plan of redemption is to proclaim righteousness and justice to others. His people are to practice righteousness and justice. Proverbs 21.3, to do righteousness and justice is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. Jeremiah 23.5, we see this in the, the, the context of God's plan of redemption. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. Amos 5.24, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Psalm 106.3, blessed are those who observe justice and who do righteousness at all times. Here's the deal. God is concerned with righteousness and justice, and he wants to display righteousness and justice in others' lives, and he's using us as a conduit to bring him himself to other people. Now, I take comfort in that. 
I take comfort in that because it's not like I'm the first person to ever think about how something may be fair or unfair. God is a God who loves justice and righteousness. He desires to see that spread out throughout the entire universe. I take comfort in that. He's righteous. He's just. He wants his people to practice these things as well. Now here's, here's a third truth that I take comfort in. God punishes sin without fail. God punishes sin without fail. You say, now how in the world is that a comforting truth? Well, let's think about it. Look at the text again. God has had this inner dialogue within himself, and, and then he looks at Abraham, and, and he says to Abraham in verse 20, he says, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great, their sin is very grave. I'm going to go down and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. And so the, the two uh, angelic, I believe they're angels, the messengers there go. And Abraham, it says, what does it, what does it say Abraham does? It says he, he still stood. Why did he do that? I think Abraham knew well, first of all, as God uses that phrase, I'm then going to go down, you, you know that he already knows what's taking place. The outcry has been very great. He knows what's taking place. And now, in his kindness as God, he's entering into humanity and he's allowing through these, these messengers to, to interact with humanity who's, who's in a, a world of trouble here. Now, why does Abraham stand still? Abraham knows how this is going to play out, I think. In other words, Abraham's like, yeah, I wonder how those guys are doing, the Sodom and Gomorrah folks. Yeah. No, he, he knows. He knows their wickedness. And, and he knows God's righteousness. And I think he stands still because he knows that God is a God who deals with sin, and he's, he's pretty terrified as, as to what this means. He knows what's going to happen. Now, how, again, how is this comforting, though? Let me give you an illustration that I don't, I don't know if this works or not. It works for me. <laughs> Helps me think about it a little bit. Because it's something that I'm not settled with. I'm thinking about the, the election. Maybe some of you are a lot. You know, the, the primaries are going on. And, and you have these, these people who, I, I, you know, I, don't, I, haven't, I haven't lived the whole course of American history. But man, just in my life, it seems like uh, these, I've never heard debates like these before. But uh, especially on the Republican side, but but you, you know what you know what happens, right? I mean, it's already kind of starting to happen. Is these these people are going to say it happens every election cycle? They say just terrible things about each other, and then and then later it's like they they say wonderful things about each other. You know, this one guy dropped out recently. He just said terrible things about one of the candidates, and now has endorsed him and says wonderful things, and the candidate said terrible things about him and now says wonderful things. But it's just, it's just, it's just silliness, right? It's just crazy. As you, as you watch it, you think, this, this isn't real. It's real in the same way reality TV is real. This can't be true, right? This can't be true. And I, I don't know. I don't know if you feel this way, but there's just, there's just an unsettledness to, to, my, to my soul as I, as I see these people talk and say these things about each other because it hasn't really been dealt with. Hey, you know, you said these four things about this guy, why I should, you know, um, move to a different country if something happens with this guy. And, and now you're telling me, deal with these four things. What happened, you know? Now, here's, here's the analogy. I don't know if this works or not. 
But if God, if God just said, okay, um, yeah, sin is terrible. It's, it's this horrible thing, but, uh, all right, let's just, let's just have a relationship and never dealt with it. How would our relationship be? I don't know about you. I don't want to go into eternity with sin. I don't want to spend eternity as a sinner separated from God relationally because of those things. I want it dealt with. And as painful as this is, it, it, it's also a good thing to know and to take comfort in this that God is a God who deals with sin. Absolutely, completely, thoroughly, totally, God deals with sin. And there's, yes, there's, there's some pain as we think about that, but there's also some joy. How is this comforting? Because I know this. I hold on to this truth as I struggle that every sin that others are committing against me is going to be dealt with. And I, every sin that I've committed against others is going to be dealt with. The entirety of the issue of sin will not escape God's notice. It causes me to take comfort in the absolute holiness of this God who's going to be the one who deals with sin in a way that I can't, in a way that you can't. God punishes sin without fail. Abraham realizes that, and it causes him to have confidence to talk to God about it. Here's a fourth truth. Fourth truth, God judges justly in every circumstance. This is another truth that I take comfort in, and Abraham does as well. Abraham has been standing still, and now he draws near, and in verse 23, he begins to make his plea. He asks the question, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? It's a, are you fair? Are you fair, God? And he says, suppose, and he begins with 50. Are you going to sweep away the 50 righteous? Uh, are you going to sweep away the place and not, not spare the 50 righteous? And, and then in verse 25, he says this statement, and he grounds, he grounds his statement in a, in a theology of, of God, right? He says, he says, far be it from you. I don't believe that you would do such a thing. You wouldn't put the righteous to death with the wicked, so the righteous fair as the wicked. Far be it from you. And then he, then he says this, this theological truth about who God is. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right, what is just? He grounds this in his theology of understanding of who Yahweh God is. He knows that God always judges justly based upon his character. The judge of all the earth will do what is just. Not just he has the ability to do justice, but he always unceasingly, unwaveringly does that which is right. And so Abraham says, okay, I know I know this is the end of how this goes. Now, now here's the circumstance that I'm in. And I don't know, God. Isn't the judge of all the earth going to do that which is just? What sort of ability does our God have? He has perfect knowledge. At every moment of your life, not only has God had an infinite amount of time to consider every moment in which you find yourself in, but, but he knows, so he knows that moment far better than you do, but he also knows that moment in conjunction with, with all other human beings who are around you. And so he knows that moment in conjunction with all the moments of everyone else who's around you. And not only does he know that moment in the present, he also knows everything about that moment from the past from eternity past, he also knows everything about that moment from the perspective of the future. In other words, God has the ability to judge justly because he has perfect knowledge. He also has perfect 
objectivity. He has objectivity in a way that I certainly don't. Someone was asking me to make a, an assessment about something recently, and I said, look, friends involved in this, I, don't, I, can't, I can't judge this. I don't, I don't know how to judge this because my, my feelings about this, this person are going to, to definitely cloud my judgment. God is perfectly knowledgeable. He has perfect objectivity. He has the perfect standard, his own glory. He knows his glory better than I do, and he knows how everything affects his glory. And so he has the ability to judge in a perfect way, in a way that that, that I can't even comprehend. I've shared before with you my incredible handyman skills, and, and by incredible, like incredibly weak handyman skills. And uh, Two and a half years ago, I installed a garbage disposal. I know it was two and a half years ago because we had to check the warranty on Thursday whenever there started to be an issue with it, and it's a two-year warranty, so we were in a little bit of trouble. So we're, uh, you know, Whitney, we're getting ready to leave somewhere. It's Thursday morning, she, she says, oh, Daniel, there's, there's water underneath the sink, and so I look underneath the sink, and sure enough, there's, there's water there. I said, oh, man, and we look, and the water's coming down from the garbage disposal, and and uh, so she checks the garbage disposal box, and oh, yeah, it's a two-year warranty, two, we installed it two and a half years ago. Ah, that's, that's fine. That's fine. Then, uh, so we'll, let's look at this a little, little closer. And, and uh, as I looked at it a little more closely, I realized it's not the garbage disposal. The water's coming down the garbage disposal, but, but the garbage disposal is, is loose. And uh, it's, it's loose, and so it's causing there to be kind of a break in this, the seal where the water's in the sink. And, and uh, then, I, then I looked at it a little bit more, and I said, so what's, what's causing all this looseness? And I said, well, oh, oh dear. Um, the garbage disposal is, is supposed to have the, the little th- the um, the technical term is the hanger honor thinger um, <laughs> that it hangs from. There's supposed to be three pretty good sized bolts that that hold that thing on, and then you, then you attach the garbage disposal. The three pretty good sized bolts, and as I, I looked at it, um, ours was being held on by one. Now I'm the one who put put that in there, so. It's, one of several things happened. One, I just can't apparently tighten bolts, and two out of the three bolts in a two-and-a-half-year period work themselves loose and, and just are gone. Or, and I, I really hope this is not what happened, I looked at it and thought, I think one could work. Um, I don't think that. Or, uh, I just forgot. <laughs> when he pulled out of the box, I'm like, hey, there aren't two bolts in there, right? Okay, but here's the deal. As I looked at that, um, I have no idea what I did wrong. I don't, I don't know what happened. And not only, I don't know where those two other bolts, I'm looking around to think, well, it couldn't have been that long because I would have noticed the water earlier. I have no idea where those two bolts are. I don't know what I did to mess this thing up. And I, after first service, a couple of my friends come up, well, what happened? Is that, I'm like, you don't know either. <laughs> yeah, you're smarter than me, but you don't know. You don't know where those bolts are. You don't know what dumb thing I did. It could have been anything. We don't know. Okay, now here's the deal. If I don't know, if I don't have perfect knowledge over a garbage disposal, a garbage disposal, what gives me the incredible arrogance to believe that I understand other things perfectly? Oh, I don't know where the two bolts in our garbage disposal are, but let me tell you what God should be doing in this circumstance in your life. I don't know why my sink is leaking, but let me tell you how God should sovereignly be dealing in your sickness. I know. I know. I don't know. I don't know. But here's the deal. Here's what I do. I don't know, but I do know this because God told me this. 
through his word, God judges justly in every circumstance. Will not the the judge of the universe, the judge of the earth, do that which is right? He will. He will. I, I don't know why he's doing what he's doing in this circumstance, but I know that he'll do what's right. Now, how is this comforting? How is this a comforting truth? Because it causes me to do a couple things in, in a circumstance, right? Two things as I think about my weakness. One, it, it forces me to acknowledge that, that I'm weak and, and to turn to God. You know, I think about what Paul says in, in 2 Corinthians as, as he talks about why God brought him to a point where he says, I, I, des- I, desp- I despaired of life itself. Now, why would, why would God do that to him? Well, he did it so that he's, he says so that he would depend upon him. He placed his faith in Christ. So this gives me comfort because to think about that God judges just in every circumstance because, one, it causes me to, to turn to him in my weakness. And, or, to, or to, to, First of all, to acknowledge that I, I don't always judge justly. And, and then secondly, it causes me to, to cling to him, to entrust myself to him. Here's a, a great passage, 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, he's talking about the suffering of Christ. He's, he's talking about their suffering, and, and then he talks about the suffering of Christ and how it relates to them. And it says, For to this you've been called, suffering you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Listen how Christ responded in his time of, of suffering, suffering that was the result of someone else acting unjustly to him. It says, he committed no sin. This first, this first what he didn't do. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, and here, this is verse 23, and some of you, I, I need just to, to underline this, memorize this, meditate upon this, as we find ourselves in tough circumstances. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But what did he do? He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. When I find myself in a situation, particularly a situation where I'm suffering as a result of, of someone else's actions toward me, this, this is all I can do. I can't explain it. I can't stop it. I can just continue entrusting myself to him who judges justly. That's immensely comforting to me. We'll go through the last few a little more quickly here. This is kind of the theology, and the last three are kind of more applicational. And then the very last one is something we're going to touch on next week, Lord willing. Number five, a fifth truth. God listens when his people cry for mercy. God listens when his people cry for mercy, and that's what Abraham does here. He cries for mercy for the 50, and then he kind of continues to go. And, and, uh, you know, some have speculated, well, why did he go to 10? Maybe it's because that's, you know, if you think about Lot and his extended family and you kind of maybe see those people, and that's the ten, or or some have said, well, you know, he was he went by five, and he was going ten, 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 and and you know, ten minus ten is zero. I, I don't know why he stops where he does. I, I don't think the t- the text really tells us, but what we do see is a person interceding for people. And if you think about it, in the overall redemptive context of the story of Abraham, Abraham is already fulfilling the role that God has called him to is being a blessing to the nations as he intercedes for the, the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, and particularly his, his nephew Lot. Now, how is, how is this comforting? This is comforting because it tells us that, that God listens when we pray. God listens when we pray. 
sixth is related to this. Number six, the sixth truth. God prepares a plan of deliverance that is beyond our comprehension. God prepares a plan of deliverance that is, that is beyond our comprehension. As you come to the end of, of chapter 18, the, the conversation stops. It says that the Lord leaves. The Lord went his way when he'd finished speaking with Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. Now, this is going to happen to us at times. There's going to be a time where you've interceded with God, and, you inter- and I think it's right to continue to intercede and ask for God. And then there's going to be a time where as you continue to pray, at the same time you realize, you know, um, this, this isn't changing. God, you know, I'm, I'm in place A, and I want to be in place B, and I believe that, you know, these steps need to happen to get from here to here, and, and God is not allowing these things to happen. And, I, you know, come on, God. We, we, we all agree B is a good place to be. Why aren't you doing these things to get us here? And God says, look, I love you. Got a totally different plan for you. Totally different plan for you. This is a cute plan you came up with, but it's not my plan. This is what, what God does as we come to, to chapter 19. Uh, apparently there weren't 10. <laughs> apparently there weren't 10. And yet God still has a plan of deliverance for some of the people, right? For Lot and his family. He he deals with people in a way that, that's different than the paradigm that Abraham had for God. How's that comforting? How's that comforting? Well, when we come to the end of our conversation with God and it, things, it seems like things are going to remain the same, what do we do? What, are, what is our response? Our response continues to believe, be that we believe in God and his character. The book of Habakkuk, Habakkuk the prophet is, is wrestling with what God has said that he's going to do. God is talking about how he, you know, Habakkuk, is, he's, Habakkuk is the guy who's concerned with fairness. And so he's talking about, he, he's telling God as, as, he, as he talks about fairness, he is really upset with Israel. Habakkuk's like, God, your people are doing this and this and this. And God's like, hey, Habakkuk, thanks for bringing that to my attention. Got a plan. I'm bringing in the Syrians. We're going we're gonna to deal with this. And Habakkuk's like, whoa, 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 this, hold on. <laughs> the Assyrians are even worse than we are. You can't do that. You can't do that. And God says, look, Habakkuk, Habakkuk, th- th- this is going to take place. And your responsibility is to live by faith, he says in Habakkuk 2.4. And Habakkuk, as he thinks about what God is going to do and what God has said he's going to do, he says, look, okay. Comes to the very end of Habakkuk, Habakkuk 3. He says, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no fruit, and the flock be cut off from the fold, and, and there be no herd in the stalls. In other words, if it's all as bad as it could possibly be, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. That's what Habakkuk takes comfort in. Here's the last last truth I want you to take comfort in, and this is a truth that we're going to deal with more next week. And if you're reading ahead, we're going to be in Genesis 22 next week. And so if you want to kind of read until we get to, 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 until you get to Genesis 22, that's what we're going to be considering together, Lord willing, next week. But here's, here's the last truth I want you to meditate on here. God satisfies his wrath by punishing his own son. 
is God fair? Okay. God, is this fair? And we look at these individual circumstances, but the answer seems to be no. This seems to be not right and, and just and how righteousness and justice should, should be. And God says, no, I'm going to deal with this. This is, this is part of my redemptive plan. I'm not going to tell you all of your story right now, but here's the big story. And, and here's the, the biggest story of all. I'm going to deal with all the injustice and all the, the not rightness. All the broken things are going to be restored for those who have faith in me. And I'm going to do all of this by punishing my own son. And so do I love you? Of course. Am I kind to you? I'm kind to you beyond your ability to comprehend. That's what God says to us. The end of the story is good. The end of the story is sweet. The end of the story has a sweetness beyond our ability to to fathom, to, to process. A story that glorifies God and proclaims his care and love for us. But we're not at the end of it yet, right? We're not at the end as we find ourselves in these circumstances, we don't know how God is using them to draw us closer to him or how he's using them to, to, to change us, but, it, but it's, a, it's a question we ask with hearts of faith, believing these things about God and his character and what he says. Ultimately understanding that all of these things allow us to place our hope and our trust in his son, Jesus Christ, above all things. We'll talk more about that next week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness and your kindness to us. We don't understand it. We don't understand the circumstances in which we find ourselves in, and yet we believe in you. We trust in you. We want to be found in your son Jesus, having his righteousness alone. We pray these things in your son Jesus' name. Amen.